Hello everyone. Um, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all to this very special Spectator event. Our guest, of course, is Stephen Pinker, um, a Harvard professor of cognitive science, a linguist and an expert on more or less everything who's routinely described as being one of the world's leading public intellectuals, which is a very good thing to put on your passport. Um, now, Stephen has said early in the his new book, Enlightenment Now, he says there's no such thing as a stupid question. Um, and I hope not to test that proposition <laughs> too desperately tonight, but I probably will. Um, Stephen, to start with, this is a book which ranges across everything from the history of warfare to medicine and epidemiology to the history of ideas. Um, and obviously, you, know, you started out writing about cognitive science and linguistics. And, you know, the first sort of question is, how does a nice linguist like you end up in a subject like this? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I guess, a a as with many uh, dubious pursuits, one thing led to another. Uh, is the microphone on? Can you hear me? Yes. Very good. Uh, I uh, began with an interest in uh, language, particularly how children acquire their mother tongue, and but also in visual cognition, how we uh, imagine shapes and faces and, and um, spatial arrangements. And um, I, when I wrote my first crossover book, uh, The Language Instinct, the first book actually sold in stores to people who actually buy books as opposed to graduate students and librarians and so on, uh, I made the argument that language was a, um, a biological adaptation, uh, a distinctive part of the human mind, and, uh, captured in the title, The Language Instinct, which then led to the question, well, what are the other human instincts? And I wrote How the Mind Works about uh, the rest of, of uh, the human mind, our emotions like uh, fear and jealousy and anger and trust and liking, our uh, cognitive processes such as an appreciation of the living world, of physical objects, of uh, other people and their, their mental states. Uh, and um, uh, argue that the structure of the mind has its origin in, um, uh, in evolution, in Darwinian natural selection. Um, I uh, realized and uh, would have been reminded, even if I hadn't realized, that the very notion of, of uh, an, a, an evolved human nature is controversial. It's not just a uh, scientific hypothesis, but it has uh, emotional and moral and uh, political colorings. Uh, and um, so I followed with a book called The Blank Slate on the denial of the very idea of human nature uh, because of its supposed political implications. There was a, um, a line of thinking more or less associated with, with the left, that, uh, that human nature is a retrograde great idea because it seems to constrain the possibilities for social and political improvement. How can you aspire to make the world a better place if people are saddled with uh, fatal flaws like, like um, selfishness and competitiveness and uh, dominance and aggressive impulses? And so people will screw it up no matter what you do. That's, that was the kind of accusation uh, that claims about human nature are often uh, faced. Or that if there was, if, uh, um, if, if uh, we are blank slates, that means that we must be equal because nothing equals nothing equals nothing. And if all of the uh, human traits are the result of socialization and uh, parental upbringing, then uh, that holds out the hope that not only can we perfect humankind by bringing up kids in the, in the right way, but uh, eliminate 
differences. Uh, differences between boys and girls, differences between uh, ethnic groups, differences between uh, individuals. So that's, that's another reason why the um, notion of the blank slate, namely that there is no such thing as human nature, has, uh, ha has had its appeal. Now, I argue that the blank slate is, is false uh, as a doctrine, but moreover that uh, we should decouple it from this, these uh, political connotations, that uh, the, uh, even if there are um, say differences between um, the sexes. That is not a, uh, a license to discriminate because we have a political and moral principle that people should be treated as individuals rather than as mem members of a group. And moreover, that we know that for any trait in which the sexes differ, uh, they, the overlap in the distributions is enormous mm -hmm. and so that there isn't a lot of predictive power uh, for uh, an individual based on, on uh, that person's gender in the first place. That moreover, even if human nature does comprise some um, uh, ugly motives. Uh, human nature uh, is, as I if it is, as I argued it to be, a uh, complex system of many components, many, many uh, uh, um, drives, then uh, uh, some of them can counteract others. And it's unmistakable that together with some of our darker impulses, like, like revenge, like jealousy, we have, there are parts of human nature that uh, impel us to uh, get along and improve our condition. We have self-control. Uh, that's one of the reasons we have enormous frontal lobes, is in order to, that, that we can uh, um, inhibit our impulses and act uh, suitably to, the, to an occasion. We have a sense of empathy. We have uh, an ability to internalize moral norms and so that some kinds of behavior just aren't, uh, uh, aren't thinkable in, in particular circumstances. And I noted in the blank slate that not only does um, the uh, existence of a complex human nature not doom us to endless uh, strife and violence, but that uh, just a glance of history confirms that we aren't doomed to endless uh, strife because there are obvious uh, improvements. Uh, we abolished barbaric practices like slavery and torture executions. The Soviet empire collapsed with very little violence. And I cited one, one data set that I had stumbled across that uh, rates of homicide, um, which, for which records go back to the 14th century in England, have uh, tumbled so that a contemporary Englishman has about one thirty-fifth the chance of being murdered compared to his medieval ancestors. Or it depends uh, what he's drinking. Yeah. <laughs> so having, and I, I reiterated these observations from the blank slate in a, um, uh, a blog post in which a number of authors were um, challenged to, to answer the question, what are you optimistic about? And so I reiterated these observations from the violence chapter in the blank slate that by a number of measures uh, we become less violent over, over time. <laughs> then I was um, uh, flooded with correspondence from historians and social scientists saying, well, you could have cited far more examples of declines of violence. Did you know that it's not just England in which uh, rates of homicide have uh, plummeted since the Middle Ages, but also the Netherlands and Germany and Scandinavia and Italy? Uh, other scholars wrote and said, well, did you know that the rate of death in warfare has come down by a factor of 20 since just the 1950s, uh, and that war between countries is uh, obsolescent? There are fewer and fewer of them. Uh, other, uh, someone else wrote in and said that rates of domestic violence have been uh, sinking in, in uh, Western uh, industrialized states, rates of child abuse. 
And sitting on these data sets from diverse sources, I realized that there's a, an underappreciated story that was waiting to be told because I was surprised by each one of them, so I knew that people who weren't privy to them would be even more surprised. But also having received so many of them, I thought, is, uh, well, I wondered, is there, is there a pattern? Is there a common reason why in so many areas we started off violent but learned to tame the violence as a society? And how, how as a psychologist, could I uh, explain that? So that's what led to the book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And I am, I am wrapping up this very long and <laughs> shaggy story. Uh, after completing The Better Angels, uh, I was again surprised and, and pleasantly surprised that other measures of human well-being uh, had also shown improvement. Again, to the, my own surprise and I think to the um, uh, uh, to the bewilderment of people who, who are first confronted with it, this news that rates of extreme poverty have, are, are uh, plunging. That um, despite uh, highly publicized setbacks in countries like uh, Turkey and Russia, democracy has been showing a rise over the decades that, that is only plateauing in the last few years, but that the world is more democratic than ever, that uh, literacy is soaring worldwide and that 80% uh, of the world is literate and 90% of uh, people under the age of, of uh, 20, that uh, undernourishment under, uh, under, under is in decline, uh, infectious diseases are in decline, longevity is increasing all over the world, not just in the developed world. And once again, I realized there's a story that has to be told here. Um, and that um, I thought having these uh, data between two covers with some kind of narrative that tries to explain them uh, would be a worthwhile project. And there's a lot of data and there's wonderful graphs in this shape like elephants and snakes and bison and God knows what. Dromedaries, um, yes. Dromedaries, exactly. Um, in the course of it, there is, you know, it's a story not just of human progress, you know, looked at in the long view. Um, it is also a story of American exceptionalism, because in the book you do say, you know, all over the world, you know, by and large over history, you know, happiness is increasing, secularization is taking place, and you, quite often you go, except for the United States, <laughs> yes. except for the United States, except for the United States. Why is that? Because according to some measures, the United States is both wealthier and more diverse than you know, any other country on earth, yeah. and therefore arguably should be the kind of pinnacle of your thesis. Yeah. Well, not really, because the United States, is, is, despite the fact that its Declaration of Independence and Constitution are some of the finest uh, gifts of the Enlightenment, the American framers were Enlightenment thinkers, Jefferson and Adams and uh, Hamilton and, and, and uh, Madison, influenced by Montesquieu and Locke and Hobbes and others. Um, the country never went all in for uh, uh, Enlightenment values. The country has always been divided um, between roughly uh, north and coasts versus south and, and southwest. And the south and southwest preserved a very different uh, ethic of a kind of culture of manly honor. Uh, a, um, the, the, uh, as opposed to embodying um, uh, Enlightenment uh, concepts in institutions that would um, make us collectively better than any of us are individually. Uh, there's an ethic of that a um, uh, virtue comes from the, uh, the, the heroic male who defends his uh, family and plot. Like the Greek notion of arete. The, it, it, kind of 
manly virtue rather an individual virtue. Uh, exactly, although they, I don't think they use the word arete, but... Uh, not in the, the American South. Not in the American South. Um, and so America's always been uh, divided between a kind of um, a patriotism, of uh, ethic of um, justified revenge, uh, and uh, enlightenment ideals. And um, America's, I mean, there, there are many different um, uh, re reasons that are hard to distinguish as to, uh, in terms of which is the cause and which are the effects as to why the United States still, um, in, in all of these measures, or many of these measures, the United States is still ahead of most of the world, but it's behind its um, uh, peers among um, uh, wealthy democracies. Okay. Uh, and this would be in, in measures of violent crime, in uh, uh, drug addiction, in policies like capital punishment, which have been abolished in, in uh, every other Western democracy, but retained in about a third of the American states. Also, the, Ameri the, the fact that the United States used to be plural, the United States are, uh, uh, indicates that the United States itself is, uh, has never been a homogeneous uh, entity. And states retain autonomy and have uh, often uh, gone, gone in their own directions. To go back just briefly, you were saying cause and effect and the Enlightenment, obviously, you know, this, this is a book that draws a line of cause and effect between the Enlightenment and, you know, the prosperity and fl human flourishing you describe in your kind of things have got better arguments. Um, you know, some scholars and historians will say, well, which Enlightenment do you mean in the sense that, you know, um, Diderot was doing very different things from Immanuel Kant. The Enlightenment happened over about 100 years in several different countries yes. in several different ways. And some of them were theists and some of them were experimentalists and some of them were kind of brain-in-a-box thinkers. How can you kind of generalise? In what way do you generalise about the Enlightenment? Yes, yeah, so I, um, uh, I'm uh, clear early on that the, uh, the Enlightenment did not have a... Uh, opening and closing ceremonies like the Olympics. So there isn't any question as to what really, you know, when did the Enlightenment exactly begin, when did it end? And it's not a, a club with a certain number of members like the United Nations. Uh, it doesn't have a, a particular creed. Um, but uh, I use it as a, a, a general rubric for um, a set of ideas that I summarize with the, 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 um, in, in the subtitle, namely uh, Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. I uh, characterize it as uh, concentrated in the second half of the 18th century, but it had predecessors in the Age of Reason and the Scientific Revolution in the uh, 17th century and spilled over into the heyday of classical liberalism in the 19th century. And uh, the, uh, the core idea that I, partly for convenience, call uh, the, the, the Enlightenment Project is that we can use knowledge to um, solve problems. Uh, and that the problems that we set for ourselves are those of maximizing human flourishing. So the use of sympathy and knowledge, I, I, would, I guess I would add, to, um, uh, to improve the human condition. And you describe very well, I think, how you see the one as leading to the improvements we've seen. But as a question is, do the observations you've made about the Enlightenment values and the good that they do us, do they mandate a particular political program? I a sort of market liberalism with a certain amount of social safety nets. Um, well, that's uh, not not a priori. Um, uh, 
a part of the, the, the emphasis on uh, science as one of the Enlightenment themes, including a science of uh, humanity, is that we ought to learn from uh, experience and see what works and what, what doesn't work. Um, and, and that is take a, rather than have an ideology that uh, uh, decides uh, from on high what's the optimal political arrangement, um, use societies as laboratories and retain the, the, the practices that have in fact delivered uh, the greatest uh, human flourishing. The answer appears to be that um, market economies with um, with a, a social safety net and regulation seem to be the the, uh, the optimal combination. Now, the prediction that markets would make people uh, more uh, both more affluent and more uh, cooperative, of course, goes back to Adam Smith, and, but also to Montesquieu and the, the American uh, framers. Uh, and I think that's an idea that's been vindicated. Uh, it's one that uh, many intellectuals are loath to accept. But uh, if we just look at how, uh, if we compare uh, economic systems, and, and uh, I, I note that there are some very neatly matched experimental and control groups like you know, North and South Korea, uh, or East and West Germany, uh, or nowadays Chile and Venezuela, then, then we can see that top-down authoritarian uh, control over an economy tends not to make people better off, either politically or economically. But nor is there anywhere on Earth a kind of anarcho-capitalist uh, fantasy world in which there is nothing but uh, uh, an unfettered market uh, without regulation or a social safety net. Uh, in fact, it seems to be almost an inexorable an, an process, even, even as a name, sometimes called Wagner's Law, that as societies become affluent, they devote more of their wealth to social spending, to helping the children, the sick, the poor, the aged. Well, that touched on something that I, th I mean, you know, I think many readers of the book would see some aspects of your accounts of progress as sort of, well, duh. You know, we've invented lots of vaccines, so fewer people are dying of certain contagious diseases. But, you know, there's a sort of naive assumption that I have had that when you industrialize, you pump out all sorts of pollutants into the atmosphere and everything gets worse, or when you, um, you know, suddenly capitalism is unleashed and some people become obscenely wealthy and lots of people are immiserated. You've got this notion of a Kuznets curve whereby things get worse and then they get better again. I mean, can you talk a little bit about this, yes, how that works? An economist um, named Simon Kuznets and the Kuznets curve, which he proposed, I think, in the 1950s, originally applied to uh, economic inequality. That uh, before industrialization, um, everyone's wretched. They, they live in rural squalor. As a country begins to industrialize, um, some people take advantage of the new economic uh, opportunities um, earlier than others. They move to cities. Uh, they set up businesses, they get employed by businesses, they kind of escape rural squalor, and that's bound to increase uh, inequality. But then the bottom starts to catch up and equality, uh, inequality falls again. And there, uh, you do see a Kuznets curve for uh, uh, inequality. What you also see, in which Kuznets did not anticipate, is a, um, um, a, a second wave of inequality increase, which is the one that we're going through now. Though it's possible that it originated for the same reason, namely as, uh, in, this in, in this case, rather than industrialization, it would be the information economy opens up new opportunities to get uh, wealthy. 
not everyone will take advantage of them at the same time, and those who do take advantage of them are bound to uh, open up a gap with uh, everyone else. And we don't know whether that gap will shrink again, whether there'll be a, the Kuznets curve will uh, uh, repeat it itself. Um, but uh, but it it um, I think what you were alluding to in terms of the uh, effect on on the environment is the so-called environmental Kuznets curve, which Kuznets himself did not uh, propose, but which a number of environmental uh, uh, economists have suggested is a natural arc in um, uh, economic development, that as uh, there's a, a kind of headlong uh, uh, program to industrialize, to enjoy all the benefits of uh, electricity and cars and, um, and heated homes, um, countries will tend to put a low priority on the environment. Uh, if they have to uh, endure some smog to get the benefits of electricity, they'll live with the smog. But as they start to get wealthier, um, they figure out ways of getting the electricity without the smog, because no, no one likes smog. And if you're wealthy enough to uh, afford pollution control devices, uh, then you'll, you'll spring for them. Also, as people get wealthier, their, um, uh, their thoughts tend to broaden in, in time and space, and they kind of have the uh, the luxury, if you want, of, of worrying about longer-term problems, global problems, and it does tend to be uh, wealthier people and wealthier societies that worry about extinction of species, the future of the planet, and for both these reasons you could have an environmental Kuznets curve, or I guess maybe you should go down like this if it's quality of the environment, where uh, industrializing countries um, Put a, um, uh, damage the environment in, in the headlong rush to industrialize, but then they um, uh, start to uh, alleviate the environmental problems. And we may be seeing this taking place in China right now, where they've, they're paying the, the price in uh, horrific smog for rapid industrialization. And indeed, there are campaigns now in uh, China to reverse the environmental damage. Now, it, it has to be added that the environmental Kuznets curve doesn't happen by itself. It happens when, uh, so it's not um, that just left to their own devices, uh, economies will, um, uh, or industrialized countries will improve the environment. It depends on regulation, it depends on technology, it depends on um, uh, environmental um, uh, protection measures, but that does tend to be a, a natural progression. You talked, obviously, in the blank slate, and in here as well a bit about human nature and is the enlightenment project as you describe it one that's in tune with human nature as a natural emanation of it do you think or is it a kind of cultural pushback against human nature I mean is the enlightenment or the counter enlightenment the more yeah. natural and adaptive thing uh, I, think it, I think it does represent some pushing back against human nature, or perhaps the mobilization of some aspects of human nature against others. Certainly the Enlightenment thinkers themselves were um, uh, assiduous scholars of human nature. I mean, they, they were obsessed with what makes us tick. I mean, they were cognitive scientists ahead of their time, and uh, social psychologists and evolutionary psychologists. And so you see claims about human nature running through Enlightenment thinkers. Um, but they uh, also, I think precisely because they recognized the flaws in human nature, they proposed that institutions and norms be implemented that um, uh, recognize human nature in, in uh, designating human wants and needs as things that we ought to satisfy, but also 
recognizing the flaws in human nature that left that if human nature is left to its own devices, uh, it won't end up with arrangements that that maximize human flourishing. And so, a number of the um, brain children of the Enlightenment, like democratic government, most most uh, flagrantly, are are workarounds for problems in human nature. And the uh, the American uh, framers were very, quite explicit about this. For example, the uh, mechanisms of checks and balances, uh, so that the legislate, legislature and the executive and the judiciary each check the others, were designed so that, as uh, Madison put it, ambition will counter ambition. Uh, since there is a tendency for uh, leaders to try to consolidate power, uh, if you have rival factions, each one of which wants to, to preserve its own power, it will naturally put a check on the others, and that the system as a whole will increase human uh, well-being, even if you would never entrust the system to any one person with all uh, his human flaws. Uh, markets would be another example, and Adam Smith, of course, was uh, um, uh, explicit in saying it isn't from the uh, uh, beneficence of the butcher and baker that, that uh, we get our meal, but from their, their self-interest, but that in a properly functioning market, individual selfishness, a trait of human nature, can nonetheless be uh, mobilized to work for the, the benefit of all. The idea of um, community and sympathy is very important in this book, is beyond just, as it were, our rationality. But I wonder how you sort of, as it were, draw a distinction between the notional abstract brotherhood of man that's part of the Enlightenment project and the more narrow tribalism that seems to be embedded in us that we define ourselves in relation to another and that therefore nation states and you know as Mrs Thatcher famously said there's no such thing as society there are only individuals and their families you know we sympathy is much more powerful in proximity is there a way of resolving that or is that I, I think there'll always with? be intention that uh, um, at every level, that we're, we're bound to um, be more sympathetic to our families than to strangers. And it's not, in, in one sense, that's ethically unjustifiable. If, uh, if I have to run into a building to save you know, my child or two of someone else's children, I'd probably save, save my child, and that's ethically uh, monstrous, but it probably is built into human nature, and it may not be something that we'd want to extirpate even if we uh, ha had the chance. And there may be some natural tendency to favor one's uh, kin and clan over, uh, over outsiders. On the other hand, our, uh, simple, our um, definition of a clan or tribe is, is uh, rather elastic. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a variable. It's not a, a constant. And we can reconceptualize who we count as our um, tribe mates. And there's, there is a, a historical tendency uh, that once we uh, apply our um, uh, uh, sense of sympathy to people outside our immediate family, there's nothing that prevents it from extend, extending outward uh, indefinitely to include all, all of humanity, perhaps with some, some amount of, uh, some gradient, but... Um, so there's a lot of the conventional thinking in identity politics, which I know you're pretty hostile to, to say that we do define ourselves in terms of another, and you know, to go back to linguistics, you know, Saussure said, you know, a phoneme is important in its difference from another one. Right. I mean, isn't that not wired into us at a very basic level? That well, it's it's a, it is a, it is a bias, but I don't think it's it's a um, uh, 
rigidly hired, hardwired in. Otherwise, we could never um, uh, agree to things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We'd never give to charities whose beneficiaries are uh, Africans. Uh, we would uh, never send peacekeeping forces to um, try to bring, bring peace to regions of the world with people unlike ourselves, and, and we do all these things. Now, we do it not completely relying on the uh, sympathy of an individual for, for other people unlike themselves, but we, we uh, try to institutionalize it in um, organizations like the UN, in principles like universal human rights, which we acknowledge even if we don't necessarily feel it viscerally applying to every last uh, human. Um, Adam Smith was very uh, poignant about this, where he um, said, I think he called it the, the inhabitant of the breast, the, um, the inner voice that, that, uh, that tells us that we uh, should look beyond our uh, parochial interest in ourselves and our families and, and realize that other people's lives are as intrinsically valuable um, <coughs> as our own. And uh, he had a very poetic description, which I can't hope to uh, uh, replicate on how it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a soft voice, it's a small voice, but it's an insistent voice and we can't uh, ignore it forever. Uh, and it's out of that, 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 that feature of human nature. It may not be the most powerful if left to itself, but it can be nurtured and it can be institutionalized. And it is also something that we tend to be pushed towards when we are forced to justify our uh, beliefs. So when people sit together and they, uh, they, they form governments or international agreements, when people from different backgrounds uh, are thrown together and have to problem solve uh, as a group, the conversation tends to go more universal simply because that's the, uh, uh, all that we could, we could agree on. And the ex an example that I, I cite is when the uh, different nations had to uh, come up with a universal declaration of human rights in, in the, the wake of the Second World War, where it was clear that, that something like that was needed, um, it, wasn't, it was surprisingly easy to come to a, a consensus that r rights such as um, universal um, suffrage, trial by jury, um, uh, lack of religious discrimination, were uh, uh, education were things that didn't really matter what tribe you belonged to, what religion you had. You could kind of agree that these were were um, desirable, and uh, and the Universal Declaration was uh, written, ratified, and implemented in in uh, a span of just just two years. So we do have that that capability. I don't think it's something that naturally arises. They didn't you include in that story that they they all said we we're happy to sign up to this, provided you don't ask us why. Exactly, yes, uh, that's right. The, uh, um, uh, I think that was a quote from uh, John Humphrey, who was the, uh, the, the original drafter. But isn't uh, that slightly kind of undermining to your premise that we can derive a morality from reason alone and that reason will lead us to a morality? Because reason, as you say, you know, there, isn't an, uh, there aren't national times tables. Reason, at least in the Enlightenment sense, is supposed to be something that we can all agree on. Yes, yeah, so I think the, I mean, that, that, the, the statement was somewhat tongue-in-cheek in, in um, acknowledging that you could not have a universal declaration based on um, deep metaphysical principles that uh, were logically derived from a few axioms. But um, uh, uh, unexceptionable convictions, like everyone would rather live a long life than, than a short life. Everyone would rather see their kids grow up than die in childhood. Uh, everyone would rather see their kids go to school than be uh, illiterate. 
Um, and you know, why are those important? How can you justify that you'd rather have your kid live than die? Well, I don't know if you can really justify it, but it's obvious enough that you don't have to. And by, I, I actually, in that section, I actually believe that there, it can be justified. It can be uh, put on a, a deeper foundation. But fortunately, you don't have to to uh, get enough uh, consensus to, um, to, to, to uh, uh, drive a statement of, of universal principles. Well, that's perhaps a nice way to end with a good conservative spectator principle that you know, it works in practice but not in principle. <laughs> <laughs> well, those thoughtful people who do read books are many of them in the room right here. Precisely. I hope yes. they will all read and buy two or three copies of your book <laughs> um, and will also join me in thanking the wonderful Stephen Pinker. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.